and then your attention please. Let us start our first Lenten lecture with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We Father, we thank you for this opportunity as this time of conversion, a time of dedication, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving begins. We have an opportunity to reflect upon our ultimate destiny, which is meant to be happy with you forever in heaven. Lord, help us to take very seriously our choice to know, love, and serve you. We know that you are truly playing for keeps, but also, of course, the hell is uh, the devil is playing for keeps as well. May we always keep your love and your knowledge in our hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, welcome to our 2022 Lenten Lecture Series, Dante Allegari's The Divine Comedy. Uh, in September of 2021, we had the 700th anniversary. Oh, yeah, just come up on there. I thought it was the 500th anniversary. 700th. Did I did the math wrong? Yeah, 700. I didn't know he was using that early, but not Italian. Well, uh, and then I made a mistake in the bulletin. Hopefully somebody's corrected that. 700th anniversary of the great poet Dante Alighieri's death. This year's theme explores his masterpiece, which is the Divine Comedy. And we'll have six speakers talking to us, guiding us uh, through hell in the infernal purgatory, in the purgatorio, and into heaven in the paradiso. We're delighted to feature a fantastic lineup of speakers. And of course, there is no need to have read the Divine Comedy, although I hope you are encouraged to do so if you have not read them, or maybe even to consider reading them again. A few things, uh, a few people rather, to give thanks to. And the Alter Ocean Society has offered refreshments. Thank you so much. Let us applaud them in particular. We don't take change very well, but they have made a change here. The, their serving line is actually now on the upper level. It's okay. Everybody's okay with that, right? It's not a, I'm sorry, it's not a democracy. It's done. <laughs> uh, but you can get refills on things that are necessary during the talk right here on the ground level, or on the, the lowest level. Uh, tonight I am on course the bathrooms. There are uh, bathrooms in the back, or I should say the back, yes, but also on the north side of the church. We have a handicap accessible bathroom through the chapel right off of the elevators. Uh, it's my pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. Billy Junker, who is an associate professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas. And yes, I know it's a German parish, I teased him already. We would normally have said Junker, as your dignity requires, but it's okay. It's a German-speaking parish here. In 2011, uh, Dr. Junker received his PhD in social thought and English from the University of Chicago after studying graduate philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and English at the University of Dallas. He is published in philosophy and literature and regularly teaches a course on Dante at St. Thomas to both undergraduate and graduate students. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Junker as he offers our first lecture to introduce the Divine Comedy series. <coughs> and specifically Dante's descent into hell with the antechamber. Thank you very much, Father. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here, and thank you very much to Father Moriarty and to Brandon Wilmots for organizing all this. Uh, it's wonderful to be here with you. Um, in this talk, uh, I'm going to be looking at, I'm just going to hold this, uh, the Dante's Divine Comedy, the introduction and part one, the beginning of the journey, Inferno one through three. There's a picture of Dante there. We have this mountain, if you can see it, represents Purgatorio. Down here to the left, we have Inferno. And then if you look at the heavens above Purgatorio, that's going to be Paradiso. Over here, we have Florence. Dante's... <laughs> very similar to hell. Da uh, another famous artistic depiction of Dante, again... We have him looking over at Mount Purgatorio, at the top of which we will see the Garden of Eden. You can see the light of paradise coming down. He is guarding, you can barely see it, Florence here, and then you see the fires of hell down below. Uh, let me say something real quick before I get into the talk about the structure of the comedy, just for those who, you, who haven't read it. The comedy is one long poem that's split into three big books, uh, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. The technical term for those is canticles, but you can just think of them as separate books. There are, within each canticle, there are like little chapters, which are called cantos. And there are 100 cantos in the poem, uh, 34 in Inferno, 33 in Purgatorio, and 33 in Paradiso, uh, 100 being the perfect number. Uh, real quick. Just to give some, to help the visual imagination here, uh, this is uh, the structure of Dante's cosmos. So we're going to be getting just basically here, <laughs> just across this river tonight. Uh, this is Jerusalem. We're going to be descending through hell for the first three weeks of this. Then you will have a couple weeks where you're moving up through purgatory. For Dante, purgatory is the only continent on the southern hemisphere. So Dante thinks that the southern hemisphere is empty of all land except for Mount Purgatory. So we're actually going from the northern hemisphere through the center of the earth out into Mount Purgatory. And then uh, Zeta Larson, in one fantastic lecture, is going to take you all the way through Paradiso. Uh, the structure of the Inferno overall. Uh, today I'm going to be giving an introduction the comedy as a whole, and to the first three cantos of Inferno, uh, but just because this is the opening talk, I thought it would be help again, uh, helpful again just for spatial imagination to kind of start to imagine the shape of Inferno. Uh, you see that the Inferno is, is, is made up of what's labeled here as the vestibule, uh, what, what I, I think that we're talking about as the antechamber, and then there are nine circles of hell. Uh, each circle is going to be linked with a particular vice, and groups of different vices are going to be organized together according to whether they involve incontinence or different kinds of malice. So as you go down, it gets worse. You can think of it that way. Okay? Now, let's begin. Dante's comedy begins famously with his protagonist awaking within a dark wood. 
In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. So begins a journey which will take Dante through the three realms of hell, purgatory, and paradise, and which will culminate in Dante being given a vision of God that specially graces him with a certain knowledge of the truth of the Incarnation. A certain knowledge of the truth of the Incarnation. This is the journey which Dante's comedy records and transmits to us today so that we may be strengthened in the hope for our own future glorification of body and soul. For this is what the truth of the Incarnation promises us. The truth of the Incarnation promises us the future glorification of our body and soul. And so that thus strengthened in hope, we may come to love God and each other more perfectly in what remains of this our life on earth. Dante's vision is set in the middle of the journey of Dante's life, in the year 1300, when Dante is 35, exactly half the biblical lifespan of 70 years, allotted by the 90th Psalm and Isaiah 23. As we will later come to find out, the vision occurs over the Easter Triduum and begins geographically on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. Dante's descent, resurrection, and ascent across the plot of the comedy is therefore modeled upon Christ's. And because it is modeled upon Christ's, it can also be taken as the model for our own lives. This is why Dante begins his poem in the middle of the journey of our life. But it will be helpful to know something about Dante's life in any case. Uh, Dante Alighieri was born in 1265 to a noble but not extremely wealthy aristocratic family in Florence. He died in Ravenna in 1321, having spent the last 20 years of his life as a political outcast, exile, deprived of his citizenship and property in Florence. His life was many-faceted and complex. He was a brilliant poet from a young age, studied medicine, studied philosophy and theology, and pursued an active life in the Florentine politics of his day. Two great events determined the course of his life. The first happened when he was nine years old, for this is when he first saw Beatrice Portinari, the woman who would become his spiritual muse and ultimately the instrument of his salvation. Dante next sees Beatrice when he is 18 years old. So there's a gap. And he is overcome by a power in her which he recognizes as divine. In Beatrice, Dante encounters the Lord of Love, he tells us in his first book, The Vita Nuova. And the Lord of Love is revealed to Dante as being Christ. Dante comes to believe that by loving Beatrice in the right way, he can be brought to a love of God. Beatrice dies in 1290, at only 24 years of age. And Dante's loss of Beatrice leads him into a spiritual crisis from which he will struggle to extricate himself for a long while. He finally abandons Beatrice for other pursuits, amatory and intellectual, and so betrays his pledge of spiritual fidelity to her. Dante's spiritual crisis is not resolved, in fact, except through the visionary journey of the comedy itself in which Beatrice will play a very important role. The second great event in Dante's life was his expulsion from Florence in January of 1302 as a result of a political conspiracy involving Charles of Valois, 
the brother of the king of France, Pope Boniface VIII, and leading families of the Florentine Black Guelphs. The Black Guelphs are a political party in Florence, which is the rival political party to Dante's own, the White Guelphs. Dante is exiled from Florence for the remainder of his life because of this conspiracy. And for this reason and other reasons, he's not a big fan of Pope Boniface VIII. <laughs> not a big fan of the papal monarchy, Dante. Dante dates his vision to the year 1300, two years prior to his exile from Florence. And in the course of his journey, he receives many prophecies of what is about to befall him. But he writes his poem, of course, well after the time of his expulsion, probably beginning in 1308 and ending it in 1320, just months before his death. Dante's comedy brings together these two chief events of his life into his synthesis so that his reconciliation with Beatrice and through Beatrice with God also involves his coming to hold a different view of politics and of the relationship between temporal and spiritual realities. The first canto of Dante's Inferno functions as a kind of prelude to the other 99. Its language and imagery are especially dense, elusive, highly symbolic. Dante awakens to find himself in a dark wood after falling asleep and stumbling off what he calls the straight and true path. The dark wood is savage and harsh. It is just as frightening as death itself and is very like the place described by Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. The imagery of the prophet Jeremiah also pervades the scene. Dante spends a terrified night alone in this wood. And then, oop, too fast. And then near dawn, comes to the foot of a hill. So he's in this dark wood. He spends a night that's terrified in this dark wood. Then he comes to the foot of a hill near dawn. He looks and sees that the shoulders of the hill are already clothed with the light of the sun, the planet that leads us straight on every path. Dante had fallen off the straight path. He now sees the light of the sun, which leads us straight. Dante tries to pursue that light up, up the hill. Now that he can see again, perhaps he can find the path he has lost. And so, after catching his breath, he begins to climb up the deserted slope, making a circular ascent as he goes. But immediately upon setting out, he is impeded by a lonza, a female leopard. There she is, light and very swift, with spotted fur. She so pesters Dante that at several turns of the hill, she turns him backwards down the slope, and he loses ground. But Dante does not give up, just the opposite, for it is now sunrise. And Dante sees the sun rising, as it did on the first morning of creation. Dante takes the conjunction of this time, sunrise, sunrise, and season near the spring equinox as an auspicious sign, an auspicious astro uh, astronomical sign. And so he decides to have good hope of the beast with its gaily painted hide. This leopard, on the historical level of the allegory, probably represents Florentine politics. Dante did pursue a political career in Florence from the 1290s onward, and in the year 1300 was named as one of the six governing priors of the city. 
on the moral level of the allegory, the leopard probably represents the dizzying, pestering allure of temporal goods more generally. These goods, whether food, money, pleasure, fame, often turn us from our pursuit of the highest good. Yet we, like Dante, often wrongly place our hope in them. The upper section of hell that you're going to learn about next week contains sinners whose dominant vices involve the intemperate pursuit of these secondary goods. It is perhaps not surprising then that Dante's own decision to have good hope from the leopard proves to be folly. For as soon as he decides this, two frightful beasts beset him, a ravenous roaring lion, and what is worse, a she-wolf that seemed laden with all cravings in her leanness. The approach of the she-wolf so terrifies Dante that he gives up hope of reaching the heights of the hill. In other words, he despairs. Leopard, lion, she-wolf. Here's another one. We have the she-wolf on the left, the leopard, the lion. This is William Blake. William Blake's are maybe my favorite illustrations of the comedy. Uh, you have the three Bs here. On the historical level of the allegory, the lion represents the French monarchy, and particularly Charles of Valois, who I mentioned earlier. And the she-wolf, correspondingly, represents the papal monarchy, and in particular, Pope Boniface VIII. Recall that it was a conspiracy between Charles and Boniface and the leading families of, of the Black Guelphs in Florence that lead to Dante's political condemnation and exile in 1302. On the moral level of this allegory, the lion, I think, represents acts of malice committed through violence. So acts in which you're intending to cause harm or injury to another using violence. Murder, robbery, tyranny. And the she-wolf represents acts of malice committed through fraud, probably motivated by avarice. We will encounter both groups in lower hell. That's going to be in two weeks. The violently malicious occupy the seventh circle of hell, while the fraudulent those who deceive others in order to injure them, occupy the eighth and the ninth circles of hell, the lowest. As the wolf drives Dante back down to where the sun is silent, right back down to where the, the dark wood again, he suddenly crosses paths with another human figure. Miserere on me, Dante cries, whether you be shade or true man. The figure, who is a shade, is Virgil, the great Roman classical poet and author of the Aeneid. Dante, who regards Virgil as the honor and light of the other poets, and indeed as his own master and author, is awestruck. Dante asks Virgil to help him overcome the she-wolf, the cause of Dante's distress, but Virgil tells Dante he must hold to another path if he hopes to escape the wood. For the she-wolf will let nobody pass her way until she is defeated by the greyhound, who will chase her back to hell. The greyhound represents, historically, the advent of a new Holy Roman Emperor who will defeat the papal monarchy, restoring it to its proper office as spiritual lord, not temporal. And spiritually, the greyhound represents Christ, 
Virgil tells Dante now at the conclusion of Canto I about the new path he must take. He says, for your own good, I think and judge that you shall follow me and I shall be your guide. And I will lead you from here through an eternal place where you will hear the desperate shrieks. You will see the ancient suffering spirits who all cry out at the second death. That's hell, in case you don't know. (laughs) And you will see those who are content in the fire because... They hope to come, whenever it may be, to the blessed people. That's purgatory. And then the blessed people that we just had mentioned is, of course, paradiso. To whom then, to whom if you want to rise to the blessed people, if you wish to rise, there will be a soul more worthy of that than I. With her, I will leave you when I depart. Virgil does not have faith. He's a pagan poet. And so, although Virgil is perfect in the natural virtues, he is not able to lead Dante past the limits of earthly perfection in the Garden of Eden and into heaven. Beatrice will be necessary for that. The hesitant, there's Virgil and Dante uh, right here. We have Virgil leading Dante among another path here. And now we have Inferno 2. The hesitant, halting, inconstant mood of Canto 1 continues into Canto 2. Dante, having agreed to follow Virgil through the three realms of the afterlife, begins to have second thoughts. Who can blame him? It is no normal thing, after all, for a living man to enter the immortal realm. Dante can think of only two precedents. The first is Aeneas whose own journey to the underworld is recounted in Virgil's Aeneid. But Aeneas had been destined by providence to be father of Mother Rome and her empire. And Rome and her empire, in truth, Dante says, were established to be the holy place where the successor of great Peter is enthroned. The papacy. Given Aeneas' world historical importance then, his otherworldly journey makes sense. The second precedent is St. Paul, who recounts his ascent to paradise in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. Paul's ascent had the purpose, Dante reasons, of bringing back strengthening for that faith, which is the beginning of the way of salvation. So Paul is given the vision of heaven in order to bring back strengthening for the faith in the early church. But Dante is not Aeneas. He's not Paul. And he doubts that he is capable of the journey that Virgil is asking of him. Virgil responds to Dante's doubts by telling him a story. The story is how it came to be that Virgil showed up in this dark woods in the first place to save Dante. Virgil explains... That he was minding his own business in limbo when a blessed lady suddenly appeared to him. This blessed lady is Beatrice. And she informs Virgil that the Virgin Mary had seen from heaven Dante's retreat from the wolf and had, in her mercy, taken pity on him and acted at once. The Virgin Mary calls to St. Lucy. It's like a game of telephone. She calls to St. Lucy and told her that your faithful one, Dante had a particular devotion to St. Lucy, 
Uh, he lost his eyes from overreading and then had a devotion to St. Lucy and got his eyes back. Uh, lost his sight, not his eyes. <laughs> Couldn't find his eyes. Uh, your faithful one has need of you, and I put him in your hands. St. Lucy then comes to Beatrice, who is contemplating God alongside the ancient Rachel. Beatrice, true praise, praise of God, she says. Why do you not help him who loved you so, who because of you came forth from the common herd? Lucy is here alluding to Dante's first great work, the Vita Nuova, or New Life, which recounts his discovery of the love of God through his love of Beatrice and also relates his spiritual despondency he suffered after her death. This spiritual despondency, I think, is figured in the dark wood in which Dante finds himself at the beginning of the poem. Beatrice does not hesitate after hearing from Lucy. She at once descends to the dead in order to request Virgil that he go to Dante's aid and do whatever is necessary for his salvation. In return, she promises Virgil her intercession. She says, When I shall be before my Lord, I will praise you frequently to him. The three heavenly ladies, Mary, Lucy, and Beatrice, correspond, in a sense, to the three beasts from Canto 1. Just as Dante's rational pursuit of the good on the basis of his own agency was thwarted in different but related ways by the leopard, lion, and she-wolf, so are these impediments of fallen nature overcome by the supernatural graces afforded him by Mary, Lucy, and Beatrice. It also bears noting that the first decisive action of the poem, the action that prevents Dante from falling back again into the wood from which he had just emerged, is Mary's intervention. This is significant, for it will turn out that the last decisive action of the poem will also belong to Mary. The comedy is a Marian poem through and through. Dante is encouraged by Virgil's story. Here we see Beatrice speaking to Virgil. Uh, Virgil is in the limbo of the virtuous pagans. Learn more about that later. Here we see Beatrice appearing to Virgil again. This is Gustave Doré. And this again is Blake's very idiosyncratic imagination uh, where we see Mary up here petitioning God. And you can't really see these figures, but you see Beatrice and Lucy being figured here. And then Beatrice down here, uh, or this might be Virgil, I'm not sure. Uh, this is Dante. Now, Dante's encouraged. Your words have so filled my heart with desire to come with you, he says, that I have returned to my first purpose. Now go, for the same will is in us both. You are leader, you Lord, and you master. And so Dante enters upon the deep, savage journey into hell. Canto 3 opens startlingly. There's the descent into hell. I love the illustrations where the figures are labeled. Uh, this is D for Dante. 
And if you can see it, there's a V for Virgil, and Virgil's leading him down in through the gate here. Here's the beginning of Canto 3. Just kind of comes upon you. We are immediately confronted with nine lines of foreboding capitalized text. We are then told these lines are inscribed with dark color above a gate marking the formal entrance to hell. The meaning of this inscription begins straightforwardly enough. Through me, the gate tells us, you go. It's actually you go. Here's translated the way. But you go into the grieving city. Through me, you go into eternal sorrow. The grieving city as opposed to the joyful city. Eternal sorrow as opposed to eternal joy. The lost people as opposed to the blessed people. Through me, you go to these, these, these people and places. Since hell is located on the other side of the gate, all this makes sense. But things quickly become more complex. The gate points to the virtue motivating its construction, justice, and then proceeds to a Trinitarian account of its creation. Divine power, the Father, highest wisdom, which stands for the Son, and primal love, which stands for the Spirit, the gate says, made me. In short, the requirements of justice prompted the triune God's creation of this gate. The gate then situates itself within the created order. The only things created before this gate were eternal ones, by which Dante means the first things created and extending, enduring eternally. He doesn't mean completely outside of space and time. Only God is eternal in that sense. But the only things made before this gate are three groups of things for Dante. One, the angels. Two, prime matter. And three, the composite bodies of the heavens and earth. Okay? So the gate is the thing created after those. The gate was created after these things because it comes into being only after the fall of Satan and the other rebellious angels. The gate addresses a parting message to those who enter through its open doors. Abandon every hope, you who enter. This message is usually interpreted as an imperative, a command, in English translations of the comedy. Uh, but the grammar of the Italian is also consistent with the message being read as an indicative, a statement of fact. One could take it either way. I think Dante intends that. On this interpretation, the latter one, the message is offering a description of the spiritual state of those who enter through the gate. It is telling them something that is already true about themselves. Namely, you who enter here abandon every hope. The indicative reading of the message, while perhaps less obvious than the alternative, is theologically more accurate. For it is not that the damned are required to abandon hope upon their entry into hell, but rather that those who are damned are precisely those who have abandoned hope. The abandonment of hope, especially in Dante, 
is the cause of damnation, not its effect. Dante returns to this point again and again in the comedy. He writes later on, so long as hope has any touch of green, no one so loses the eternal love that it cannot be regained. Hope is described in this passage as green, and this is in keeping with its traditional Christian symbology. Because hope is the sign of spiritual life within the person. To live without hope, then, is already to experience hell on earth. To live without hope is already to experience something like damnation. And so it makes sense that the chief purpose of Dante's vision and the poem that results from it is to strengthen the hope of its readers. The purpose of Dante's poem is for your hope to be strengthened. It turns out that Dante is not that different from St. Paul. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> for just as Paul was taken into heaven to strengthen the faith of the church, so Dante sets his poem up to suggest that Dante is given this journey so as to strengthen its hope. Finally, and in some sense paradoxically, I have to point out that these words inscribed upon hell's gate, even while taking everything I said very seriously, I also want to say that these words are not as definitive as they seem. They can't be, because the gate is open, isn't it? You might think, reading these words, that once you enter, there's no going back. But this is wrong, technically, because Christ has broken through this gate from the inside and has exited its confines. Christ has broken this gate, and he's exited this gate with all the souls he redeemed from limbo on Easter morning. What this means for the final state of those who remain in limbo after Christ's resurrection, those like Virgil himself, is not spelled out by Dante. Though I would like to remind you of Beatrice's promise to Virgil. When I am before my Lord, I will praise you frequently to him. And what that promise at least seems to imply. <coughs> Excuse me. Let us turn to Dante's text now as we begin to make our way into hell. There's the gate. We're entering. Here's another. There's Blake's gate. You can see the writing up on top. And this is a depiction of this no man's land that we're going to be in. Uh, we're going to find out who these souls are right, right here. Uh, and I'm going to read a description of them and we'll sort of think through it. Virgil speaks. We have come to the place where I told you. You will see the grieving peoples who have lost the good of the intellect. They've lost the truth. And putting his hand on mine with a cheerful glance from which I drew strength, because Dante's terrified, he introduced me into the secret things. Their sighs, weeping, loud wailing, resounded through the starless air for which at the outset I shed tears. Strange languages, horrible tongues, worlds of pain, accents of anger, voices loud and hoarse, and sounds of blows within. I joke that this sounds like my family getting ready for school in the morning. 
I don't know if anyone can relate to that. <laughs> Made a tumult that turns forever in that air, darkened without time, like the sand when a whirlwind blows. And I, my head girt with horror, said, Master, what is this I hear? And what people is this who seem so overcome by grief? And he said to me, The wretched measure is kept by the miserable souls who have lived without infamy and without praise. They are mixed with that cowardly chorus of angels who were not yet rebels, yet were not faithful to God, but were for themselves. There had developed a tradition that's more or less, I don't think, live in the church now, but there had developed a tradition out of the Alexandrian school of exegesis that was taken up in the Middle Ages, according to which there was a group of angels who just kind of like were neutral in the uh, fight between Satan and Michael. So that's what Dante is referring to here, the neutral angels. The heavens reject these humans and angels so as not to be less beautiful. So if the heavens were to take them, the heavens be less beautiful. Nor does deep hell receive them, lest the really wicked glory over them. And they can't go to hell, to deep hell, because the really wicked people would glory over these. And I, Master, what is so grievous that it makes them lament so loudly? And he replied, I will tell you very briefly. They have no hope of death. And their blind life is so base that they are envious of every other fate. The world permits no fame of them to exist. Mercy and justice alike disdain them. Let us not speak of them, but look and pass on. When I looked again, I saw a flag running in circles so rapidly that it seemed to scorn all pause. And after it, there came so long a train of people that I would not have believed death had undone so many. Immediately I understood. So from looking at this picture, from looking at this scene, and from hearing what Virgil is saying, Dante understands who this group of people are. Immediately I understood and was certain that this was the sect of cowards, displeasing both to God and to his enemies. These wretches who never were alive were naked and tormented by large flies and wasps that were there. These streaked their faces with blood, which mixed with tears at their feet was gathered up by disgusting worms. Okay, that's a lot to hold in your heads. I understand. <laughs> so I'm going to go through this passage and we'll try to return to the imagery and try to make some sense of sort of what's actually being depicted here. And as will be the case with every group of sinners we encounter in the inferno, the punishment of these sinners is in some way an external reflection of the nature of their dominant sin. I'm going to repeat that because it's very important. The punishment of these sinners, the specific punishment we see, is in some way an external reflection of the nature of their dominant sin. 
by paying close attention to the particular mode of punishment suffered by a group of sinners, we can gain a better understanding of the nature and effects of their chief spiritual vice. Okay, now, we're going to see how this works here. But I do want to note, first of all, that this group of sinners is unique in the, in the inferno. They do not occupy a specific circle of hell. Remember I showed you that there were nine circles of hell? They're not in any of them. They're, they're on the other side of the gate, but they're not in a definite circle. So they're in hell, but not in a proper part in hell. It's a no man's land. It's a very bizarre scene. They're consigned to wander a no man's land that is within hell, but not a proper part of it. The heavens reject them so as not to be less beautiful. And hell rejects them because the truly wicked would enjoy bossing them around. They're identified as the sect of cowards. Another way of translating that passage would be a sect of the worthless. The scriptural text inspiring Dante's imagination of this group is chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Christ says to a couple churches there, he's not happy with, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Just as Christ accuses the lukewarm of being neither cold nor hot, so Virgil had explained, remember, that these sinners have lived without infamy and without praise. They're not bad enough to be bad and not good enough to be good. Similarly, just as Christ says to the lukewarm, another passage, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. So we learned from Virgil, didn't we? That these sinners are caught between death and life. They have no hope of death. And we also heard that they never really lived. And their blind life is so based that they are envious of every other fate. Dante, uniquely here, seems to imagine these sinners that he calls a sect of cowards. How is Dante imagining the source of lukewarmness that he's interpreting uh, in Revelation and he's trying to apply to his poem? Dante seems to imagine these sinners as driven wholly by fear rather than by love. Every, okay, that's, and that's really unique because every other location in Dante's cosmos is a reflection of the love of those persons we find within it. Every other place we are in Dante's cosmos reflects the order or manner of the love of those persons within it either in a variety of disordered ways or a variety of increasingly ordered ways. Here alone, we don't have them motivated by desire, but rather by fear. In this liminal space, we encounter those whose fear, fear is, right, the anticipation of, and so in this case, the constant avoidance of things anticipated to be painful. They're constantly anticipating things to be painful and constantly avoiding them. Means that they are never able to accomplish anything deserving of infamy or praise. They merely run around in circles, just as they do now. 
forever chasing a flag that has no direction. And because they never really lived in life, but merely reacted, going here until they encountered some difficulty, which then they went over this way, until they encountered some difficulty, which then they went over this way, right? Like mid-level university administrators. <laughs> I mean, at every level, really, but... <laughs> That wasn't fair, but <laughs> but merely reacted. So in death, they are never able to die. Because they never really lived, they never are able actually to die. And their manner of existence is also one now of reaction. Their motions are determined entirely by the torment they suffer from the large flies and wasps which inflict upon them the pains they were always trying to avoid, and which together with the disgusting worms are probably understood as having hatched from their corpse-like living bodies. Can't wait to get to those refreshments. <laughs> as Dante and Virgil move past this group of cowards, they come upon the crowds of the damned who, unlike the lukewarm, will be placed in one of the nine circles of hell. They are gathered, this, this crowd of souls, on the bank of a subterranean river, the Asheron, where they await the boatman, Charon, to ferry them across. He's a demon. Charon the demon, with eyes like glowing coals, making signs to them, gathers them all. He beats with his oar whoever lingers. These damned souls, Virgil explains to Dante, are ready to cross over the river, for God's justice so spurs them on that fear turns to desire. As Dante ponders the meaning of Virgil's words, a blast of wind from the earth suddenly flashes with a crimson light, which overcame all feeling in me, and I fell like one whom sleep is taking. Dante passes out. It's an odd earthquake, actually. When Dante wakes up at the beginning of Canto Four, he will be across the river, standing on the precipice of Upper Hell. He has just begun to make the descent, whose final direction will lead upwards to God. And we too have just begun to accompany him on that trek. Thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful introduction. Uh, we have some time for questions. If we have any questions for Dr. Dunker, jump ball. Um, what does it mean when Virgil says God's justice spurs them on and turns their fear into desire? Yeah, it's a great question. What do you think it means? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. When I was reading it, I thought of um, Augustine and the pear trees. Yep. When he talks in that chapter about how. He almost delighted in his own room. Yeah. And how, um, when you get far enough from the divine love, you start to become so hateful that you, you like your delight is in 
being damned. So people are always like excited. Yes. Yes. And well, so this is the thing because remember, their punishment. So they could be afraid of their punishment, right? That makes sense. But remember that their punishment is actually just their dominant sin, which they must desire because they they desire they. In Dante's Cosmos, you get what you want. It's, I mean, in a fundamental sense. Where your desire takes you, that is where you will be. So the thought would be that the justice transforms the fear that they have at the aspect of the, of the punishment just externally considered, just the fact that it's going to hurt. It transforms that into desire because... What they are doing is just eternally living out the dominant vice that marked their life. And that's what they wanted, and so they get to keep wanting it. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. How, when you're talking about allegory and symbolism, how, how are you pretty definitive about what they mean? I mean, we've lost a lot of knowledge. Like, years ago, each flower had a symbolism yeah. that we don't have, so that... Like, if I just read this, how could I come to the same conclusion? Yeah, I, I like to think so. Uh, I, so, I think if you read it a lot, and then read a lot about Dante, and read a lot of other stuff connected to Dante, uh, that Dante wrote, right? Um, it makes sense. It's, for example, the, the beasts. It's right. obvious that the she-wolf is, is the papal monarchy. Because the wolf is the image of, the, of Rome. Right. And Virgil says definitively that the wolf blocks everyone and, and will there, be there until the greyhound comes. And we know that Dante is a strong proponent of a purely spiritual authority of the papacy. And Dante was awaiting in his life for a holy Roman emperor to arise and defeat the papal monarchy temporally for its own good. Okay. So working backward from the wolf representing the 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 church, the temple monarchy, not the church, but the, the papal monarchy, okay? We have to be specific, right? Because uh, Dante has a very high regard for the office of the papacy. He does not have a high regard for the abuse of the office that he identifies with certain, well, a lot of them. But uh, sure, okay. Um, and then the lion is connected to the House of France. And... Then you can think about, I mean, what's interesting about the leopard is that Dante's not afraid of it. It pesters him. It bothers him. It's, but he decides to put hope in it. So, so that represents something different from just fear. And so you work back, you kind of work like that. Does that make sense? That does. Thank you. Yeah, there was a question back there. And then, and then, back, and then we'll go back there. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that, Father. Yeah. Sorry. Next time. The, the murals and the doom and the, the dome in Florence, is that um, related to this whole thing? Yeah, so, um, so the question is, the murals in the dome of Florence, uh, particularly the ones in the baptistry, are they related to, uh, related to this? Uh, for sure the ones in the baptistry, uh, the, the famous Satan in the mural there has three heads. He might actually have more than three heads. But he's famously depicted with three heads, with a sinner in the middle head, uh, face inward, and sinners in the other two heads, face outward. And that is going to actually be 
the image of Dante's Lucifer at the very bottom of the pit of hell. So I do think that, that some of the visual symbolism that Dante would have known from Florence made its way into the poem. So what came before it? The, the, the paintings, the real thing, the The paintings, the, uh, the paintings in the baptistry were there before Dante. So he would have seen those. I'm not sure about the date of the, the, the Duomo and those paintings. Uh, yes? Uh, so did Dante put all of his political enemies in hell? Well, you could say that, or you could say it just so happens that they were revealed to Dante as being in hell. <laughs> uh, Dante, um, Dante puts a lot of people in hell. He puts people that he's actually, you know, it's a kind of daring thing to put anyone in hell. Uh, I mean, and it's, it's arguably a kind of issue with the poem in a certain sense. Um, like Dante's confidence in prescribing people as damned. But it's, you know, on the other hand, I think we have to say it's necessary for the fiction to work. Uh, he does put people in hell that he has deep affection for. Brunetto Latini. Uh, he's a teacher of Dante that, that Dante has deep affection for, but he ends up damned. Uh, for sodomy. <laughs> but, <laughs> you asked. Okay. Uh, uh, but that's, a, I mean, that's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, uh, remember that Dante, Dante's poem is is an allegorical account of hell, but also what Dante is really concerned about in the politics of the poem is to identify and prophetically denounce what Dante takes to be the chief sources of corruption in the Europe of his own day. So when we read hell, we are also reading like Dante's allegorical understanding of where are the chief ills residing in my, my world today? Who is to blame for them? What's the source of the biggest ills? What's the source of the biggest evils? And his attempt to identify those things is part of what leads him to place certain people in hell at, at certain parts. Yes, and then over there. So in that, is, is he trying to get back at his political enemies, or is he <laughs> trying to actually make change happen? Mm. Those are not... So is he trying to get back at his political enemies, or is he trying to make change happen? And within society. Within society. Um, this is, uh, I think, probably both. I think that there are lots of levels to the comedy. There's a, there's a certain level at which I do think it makes sense to see Dante as settling scores. There is, to my mind, a more interesting level, and I think it's the reason why we still read the comedy today, where in order to make sense of the majesty of the poem, I do think you have to be open to the possibility that Dante did receive some kind of vision. And, and I think that as you move right into paradise, you will find that what, what Dante's poem is really about is, is it really is about getting, getting us, the readers, today to confront right, the result of disordered loves, which is unhappiness. 
and motivating us to motivating us to sort of want to order our loves so that they're directed to God. And Dante's poem conveys a kind of great hope that we have because Dante is completely lost at the beginning of the poem. He's, he's despairing. Right? He is himself like facing the state of damnation. And yet, with the help of the Virgin Mary and with the help of divine providence and grace, uh, Dante ascends to the heavens. And the, the point of the poem is to enable the reader to participate in that journey in some way. So at that level of the poem, I think that's what Dante's poem is trying to achieve in, in the ultimate sense. Over there. So, so not, um, not to give away the ending, but... <laughs> that's, I mean, I don't mind. <laughs> I mean... It's hotter. It gets colder. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I, I read it, yep. and I missed why. Well, I'm happy to answer. I just don't want to take everyone's. Don't take away. So cover your ears. <laughs> <laughs> every, every, every's image of hell is hot. Well, the image of hell is hot. Maybe if you're thinking if you're thinking about it in one way, it might be cold. If you think of coldness as connected to isolation, constriction, death, right? Hot is hot is the source of life. Heat's the source of life. Uh, ice is not is not compatible with life. So uh, iciness conveys a certain kind of constriction which impedes all kinds of movement or desire or motion. That's all I'll say. Uh, yeah? Uh, I was just wondering if there's any kind of architectural significance because we see a, a best of you all before hell. We'll also see one before Mount Purgatory. I was wondering if any yeah. architectural significance. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> I mean, so later commentators call it the vestibule, but it's not identified as such in the poem. But that, that's not to say there's not something there about it, because clearly it's this kind of, Dante's poem takes a while to get going, right? It's, it's like trying to initiate us by various stages into this visionary journey. And so we begin, and then we begin again, and then we're finally there, but we're not in a circle, and then Dante passes out, right? And, 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 and we're still not even at the first circle. This is, I mean, talk about a waste of the lecture. We, you still have all nine circles to go through. <laughs> like, we've made literally no progress. <laughs> um... But uh, there, is, there is a logic to the architectural structure of hell, you'll find, as you keep going through it. Um, I don't think that, that that's necessarily modeled on the kind of like building or anything like that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one more. Can we have two more? Can we have that one and that one? Sure, two, more. two more. That one and that one. want them, tell them want them, but they end up technically within the confines of hell anyway. So yeah. I don't think they're within like the outer wall of not the circle. Instead of being outside of hell altogether, maybe chased around in a dark forest. So they are they are in hell but they're not in hell. Yeah. They're, they're technically within the confines of it. They're, yeah, they're technically within the gate. 
but it's just that they're not within a definitive place. And I think they're not within a definitive place because their love wasn't strong enough to have a definitive object. Like, the lack of place has to do with the failure of their love to produce action, and that's connected with Dante's sense of them as being basically motivated only by fear or by wanting to avoid any kind of, any kind of uh, friction. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. What translation or text are you using? Um, I'm, I'm using... Uh, I'm, I'm using the, uh, a translation by Robert Durling, but uh, there, there's lots of good ones. Um, th- this, is, this, is very, this is very big and hefty. Uh, Anthony Ezelin's translation is very good and has the Italian. Uh, and also, I would recommend uh, the translation by Robin Kirkpatrick, which is in the uh, Penguin Classics translation, which is uh, much cheaper, which is a very, very good. Robin Kirkpatrick is very, very good. So is Anthony Ezelin. Those are both excellent translations. Um, there's another, uh, John Hollander is very good too. I, I, there's lots of good ones. Okay. What's yeah. the best commentary though to kind of get you just a your take? You had to pick a book that's got I think that any, um, so I think that, that uh, all, the, all the editions that I just mentioned have pretty good commentaries on them. Enough that you can really, you'll have, Enough that you'll learn about the historical people in the poem that you don't know, and that will help you with, with making some connections. Um, so, so any modern edition of, of the comedy will, will have editorial notes that are helpful. Uh, a lot, I mean, I like this one because the translation is very literal and there's tons of notes, but, but it's probably a little bit over the, I, I teach with it. So a lot, any of them are good. Oh. That was lukewarm. <laughs> well, really, it's like okay. If you had to buy, if you had to buy, if you're going to buy one, I would buy either the Anthony Eslin one, the Robin Kirkpatrick one, or the Robert Durling one. I have all three. So, all right. Let's uh, thank our. Thank you very much. Come on, all right, right? Great. That kind of deal you want me to do? Okay, yeah. Uh, just a few announcements as we conclude. If you have more questions and you want to ask him, punch him down. Uh, a few announcements before we uh, wrap up. Uh, so we are recording these lectures. If you uh, miss a lecture, uh, if you want to listen again, pass along. Uh, we'll, we are recording them. We will um, chop them, edit them, and put them on the Synagogue SoundCloud, which you can access from our website. Feel free to take a flyer to um, back to your home parish or put it on your refrigerator if you want. Um, when we're done, um, and uh, if I can have some volunteers help put away some of the folding chairs, they all go in that back corner. Uh, I want to thank once again the Ultra Rose Society for refreshments. Um, if you haven't yet, uh, feel free to drop an offering donation in their free will basket. That helps to offset the costs of the series and um, especially the speaker's fees. Uh, join us next week for Dr. Catherine Devo, The Inferno Upper Hell. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a good night. Yeah, I teach you as a graduate course.